My name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here at Mosaic. I am not the lead pastor of our church. Renaud Vanderit is the lead pastor, and I am so glad that I am not him. Now, some of you, if you're not super familiar with Renaud and Brooke and his story, uh, you might feel like that sounds kind of rude, Joel. That's a rude thing to say. But for those of you who, who know Renault, you might understand, the guy has eight children. For the last 10 days, I have had a very intimate window into Renault and Brooke's life because as they have been out of town and on a marriage retreat together, my wife and I have been house-sitting and babysitting their eight children. Yeah, yeah. Hashtag mission serve, am I right? You know? So uh, Lauren and I, we've been married for a year and a half. Now I have student ministry experience. I, I'm a youth pastor, I'm the youth pastor here. And so I'm used to dealing with hordes of, of humans that are, that are smaller than me and, uh, and some bigger. And uh, yet my, my wife, uh, she's not a big fan of teenagers in general, right? Um, and our parenting experience, Lauren and mine, uh, we've been married a year and a half. It basically, the end of it is uh, a, a golden doodle at home. Okay, that's all we got, all right? Uh, my wife is a nanny, uh, so she, she loves kids. I'm a youth pastor. We have a golden doodle. And then all of a sudden, we have eight children, like, like uh, overnight. And it was terrifying. Can I just tell you, like stepping into that, um, Brooke and Renault uh, called and asked us, and we were like, yes, uh, help us, Lord. And uh, and so Brooke invited us over to the house before they left town to give us instructions so that we would know what to expect about the rhythms of life, the rules of the house, uh, all of the things that we needed to do and be prepared to do in order to make sure that the 10 days uh, didn't end in some sort of explosion and calling the cops or, or, or the fire department. So they begin to kind of uh, unpack for us, okay, this is what's going on. And as, as Brooke begins to share this stuff, she hands me this manual. And I've seen car manuals that are thinner, okay? Like, this is like the, uh, this is the How the Vander at Home Works manual. It's like pages and pages of schedules and information and, and logistics and things that need to happen simultaneously. And since I'm not God and have not figured out omnipresence, it's terrifying, right? And, and so the, the 10 days for us actually went really well. Renault and Brooke have fantastic kids most of the time. Um, <laughs> Oh, excuse me, it's allergies, the fall. Uh, and they're great, they're great. And, uh, and some of them are very responsible um, and were very helpful. And so we, had a, we really did have a great time. Um, but for us, sticking to the manual meant everything. Like knowing where people had to be, uh, knowing what meals needed to be prepared uh, for 10 people, which is crazy, right? Uh, knowing what needed to be done, we had to stick to that manual. It was, it was for us life and death. It was the difference between uh, harmony and like some form of an all-state commercial that ended in mayhem. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that was where it was at for us. So we consulted the manual with everything. If a kid came and asked for permission to do something, What's in the manual, right? Uh, if, if, if a kid said, hey, who's taking me to such and such? Well, what's in the manual, right? And that's what we went back to over and over and over again. Well, here we are, Mosaic. We are stepping into the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul is really writing to the church in Rome the manual for Christianity. 
He is teaching uh, the the Romans through this letter uh, what it looks like to follow Jesus. He is unpacking the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in a more holistic way than any other letter in Scripture. And he is sharing with the Roman church exactly what it looks like to follow Jesus after Jesus. And we are stepping into the book of Romans uh, together. Last week, if you were here, Brady, Brady White, one of our pastors, shared a uh, fantastic message on the life of Paul and about who the author of the book of Romans is and was and, and how that impacts the book. If you did not get to listen to that, I would highly recommend you go back onto the website and podcast that message because it's phenomenal and will help set you up to understand the rest of the book of Romans. This morning, we're going to walk into uh, the, the, the city and the church of Rome and to understand who they are and what was going on and why the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. So grab your Bibles. We're going to dive in together. Uh, we're going to go to Romans chapter 1 and start in verse 7. If you have one of the Mosaic Bibles, it's on page 1039. Romans chapter 1. Starting off in verse 7, page 1039 of the Mosaic Bibles. So verse 7, Paul says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the, Lord of Jesus, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's salutation, and he's giving us a, an understanding of who the audience is, who this letter is written to. It is, his, uh, it is his greeting. It is, for us, our way of understanding who Paul was writing to. Paul wasn't writing to the emperor of Rome. He wasn't writing to the city. He was writing to the church, for those people who love Jesus, and not just some of the people who love Jesus in the city of Rome, but to all of the people who loved Jesus in the city of Rome, to the whole church in Rome. Now to understand what was going on in the church in Rome, I need to give you a little bit of a backstory, a little bit of history. So we're going to walk through kind of the location, uh, what Rome was all about, what it looked like. We're going to walk through the timeline and then we're going to walk through why Paul decided to write uh, to the Romans. So first of all, the location, uh, Rome was a city that was unparalleled in its time. It was the city of cities. Uh, if you could think about our modern day cities, uh, Rome would be likened to kind of like Washington, D.C., New York, Paris, and Beijing all wrapped into one. You got all the political power, all the cultural power, uh, all of the financial power, um, really everything um, that, that, that life centered around during this time period centered around the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. Rome was led by an emperor. Of course, there was a senate as well, but the emperor uh, was, was as close as we could think of as the president, right? But the president with quite a bit more power. Same amount of influence as the president of the United States and perhaps even more influence than the, pre- the president of the United States has. But the amount of uh, you know, power that someone like a, a dictator like King, Kim Jong-un in North Korea might have, right? So all this influence and all this power was wrapped up in the person of the emperor. In fact, the people regarded the emperor and they called him Caesar. Uh, Caesar was actually worshipped by the people. When Rome would go and conquer a people group, 
One unique uh, aspect of the Roman uh, uh, conquering process is they allowed people to continue to worship the gods that they served previously in their own people group. The only requirement was that they added to that that Caesar is Lord. And during the writing of Romans, uh, you know, Caesar worship was really, really at its very height. Uh, Rome was made up of about 600,000 to a million people, which at that time frame was absolutely gigantic. And at this time, there was a large Jewish population in Rome. Most people believe about 10% of people in Rome were Jewish. And because of uh, the way that the Jews lived and because of how they interacted with the rest of the culture, uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of people that were against the Jews that lived at that time. And part of the reason for that is because Julius Caesar allowed the Jews to worship God, the one true God, their only God, and not worship Caesar as Lord. So the rest of the Roman citizens were kind of looking in on the Jews and saying, they're weird, they dress weird, they talk weird, uh, you know, their worship is weird, it's all very unique, they eat weird food, they don't eat the foods that we eat, and they don't have to worship Caesar as Lord. So there was a lot of jealousy and anti-Semitism that was going on in Rome at that time. Now to walk into kind of the timeline of how these, uh, the events unfolded, the church in Rome was probably uh, planted around late 30s AD or early 40s AD. So about 10 years to 12 years after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, the church in Rome was planted. We're not sure who planted the church. We think it's possible that, that, that at Pentecost, um, when the church was first established, some people who were Roman from Rome uh, had become Christians there, and then they went back to Rome and spread the gospel over time, and that's how the church came to be. We're not really sure exactly how that came to be, but we know that there was a church in Rome the late 30s or early 40s. Now in 49 AD, um, which is about... Um, five years after the church had been uh, uh, really well established, they were planted in the late 30s, early 40s, took them a while to get established. And about five years after being fully, really established as an organized church that were meeting in several houses throughout the city in Rome, uh, something very, very monumental happened. Claudius, uh, who was the Caesar at the time, kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. So about 10% of the population all of the Jewish people were kicked out of Rome. Now, scholars who look into this, uh, historical Christian scholars who look into this, many of, many, many of them believe that the reason this happened is because all of these Jewish people were squabbling over who the Messiah was. So you have many Jewish people who did not believe in Jesus, and you had people who believed in Jesus, and these Jewish people were squabbling and fighting and even rioting over who the Messiah was. Most of it was the, the people who did not believe that Jesus was Lord, that did not believe Jesus was Messiah, were kind of persecuting and, and frustrated with the people who were Christian Jews. Now, if you're the emperor and you look in on this situation, all you really see is Jewish people making trouble. You don't understand the ins and outs of the religion. You don't understand uh, why the trouble is. You just look and you see the trouble. And as a, an emperor who needs to run a city in an orderly way, and we know that riots were actually the biggest enemy uh, to the Roman Empire, uh, the, the, the solution was simple. Just get all of the Jews outside of Rome. It was a lot like when Lawrence 
Lauren and I were dealing with some conflict in the Vander at home and one kid is fighting with the other and we just say, both of you go to your room, right? We couldn't really figure out all the ins and outs and all the emotions and what was going on. We didn't fully understand and we didn't super care. We just wanted to keep the peace, right? I mean, there's so many of you. Just go to your room, right? And that's kind of how we dealt with conflict resolution at the Vander, or Vander home. And that's kind of what Caesar did with the Jews. So uh, uh, Claudius kicks out uh, the Jews and they're gone. Actually, for five full years, they're gone. And because of that time period, um, you know, the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians, rose up into leadership within the church in Rome. Uh, and after that, five years go by, Claudius dies. Then the emperor Nero uh, comes in and he repeals the act and allows the Jews to return back to Rome. So now those Jewish Christians who had been exiled for five years return back to Rome and they walk into an environment where Gentile Christians have been leading the church for a few years. And a couple of years after that, Paul writes to the Roman church. So you can imagine as Paul is writing into this church, he's writing to a church that's trying to figure out who they are, trying to figure out their identity. It was a Jewish-led Jewish, uh, Jewish -led church before, but then the Jews got kicked out and now Gentiles have been leading the church and they're kind of trying to figure all that out. Imagine this, at Mosaic Church, we are an elder-led church. We are led by a group of pastors, okay? I'm one of those. Renault is one of those. Phil is one of those. And we have quite a few elders who are pastors who lead the church, right? And if you were to imagine what would happen, let's say today, all of a sudden, uh, we were kicked out of Central Florida and sent to another country, Renault, Joel, Phil, Brady, Gabe, uh, all, all of the pastors uh, are kicked out. And not only are all the pastors kicked out, but the majority of people who call Mosaic home are kicked out along with those pastors because for, for, for us, you know, here at this church, um, if we were to look at the amount of Jews that would have been Christians, it would probably be a good 80% of us. So now imagine the climate. There's only 20% of Mosaic church left. None of the leaders are here. And now those people, those 20% who are, re are remaining here, who still love Jesus and still call Mosaic Church home are left to figure out where do we go from here? And then five years go by and now Joel, Renault, Phil, Gabe, Brady, we're all allowed back to Mosaic along with those 80% of people are allowed back to Mosaic. And when we show up, Instead of coffee, there's tea. <laughs> instead of donuts, bagels. And instead of blue shirts, they are red. Heaven forbid, right? Like we walk back into this, this environment where, where for years, as Renault and Brooke came and planted this church, for years we have worked very diligently and, and the coffee, the donuts, and, and the, the, the color of the shirts are silly examples. But we have worked very diligently to create a certain uh, vibe and DNA and culture here at this church. The way that we value the gospel, the way that we value the scriptures, the way that we value worship, how we live that out, how we flesh that out, the way that we we value mission, the way that we value things like orphan care, the way that we value the way that we do giving and generosity. All of those things matter great, greatly to us. But imagine if the people who created that DNA were expelled for five years and then the people that were left behind created a new DNA 
and those people returned, how much tension that could create, right? So this is the climate that the Apostle Paul is writing into as he writes to the church in Rome. And finally, Paul's reasoning for writing to the church in Rome is sparked by his desire to move his ministry from the eastern and central parts of the Roman Empire to the western end of the Roman Empire. His ultimate desire is to be able to go to Spain. And so uh, Paul's missions base previously had been in the city of Antioch. And Paul's desire is to move his base to the city of Rome and then from there be able to take the gospel to the western part of the, the Roman Empire and to continue his missionary journey from there using the city of Rome as his missions base. But here's the thing. Paul has never been to the city of Rome to, to, to meet any of those Christians. The church was planted uh, years before. They have their own leadership structure, their own DNA. And Paul is really just introducing himself to the church in Rome. And so how does Paul choose to introduce himself to the church in Rome, asking them to become a partner with him in ministry so that they could be their new, his new base as he seeks to take the gospel to the Western Empire. What does Paul do? Well, Paul writes the most beautiful articulation, the most whole and, and, and full articulation of the gospel that we possess today as Christians, the book of Romans. The book of Romans is basically Paul's doctoral thesis on what it means to be a Christian, on what God did in the world by sending Jesus. Like the book of Romans is Paul's introduction to a church who's never met him before saying, this is what the gospel is all about and this is what I am all about as a result. So we have today a beautiful and whole picture of the gospel in the book of Romans, because this was Paul's purpose for writing to the church in Rome. So let's continue on. Verse eight, Paul continues to speak uh, to those Romans. And he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul's saying, hey, I thank my God for all of you Romans, whether you're Jewish or you're Greek, Jew or Gentile, I thank God for all of you because you have the same Christian faith that I do that is being proclaimed in all the world. See, Paul desires to minister this faith, the gospel throughout all the world because God has called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus for all of you, not just for the Jews, not just for the Gentiles, but for all of you who are in Rome because your faith, our Christian faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Verse nine, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I might now at, at last succeed in coming to you. This is how we, we know and understand that Paul had not been to the city of Rome and met with those Christians yet. 
Paul is expressing his desire to come and see them. Uh, he's saying that, that he is thankful for them, that he uh, desires to see them and be with them and not just to know about them and about their faith that's been proclaimed into all the world, but to know them personally and have friendship with them in ministry. Verse 11, he continues this thought by saying, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So Paul's saying, I, I, I don't want to just get something from you, Romans. I want to give something to you. I want to come to Rome and I want to spend time with you and I want to impart spiritual strength to you. I want to impart uh, who I am and who God has made me to be to you so that you may be strengthened. And then he says in verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I love that Paul is writing to this church in Rome who is trying to figure out who they are trying to figure out their identity, trying to figure out uh, uh, what, what it's like to live as a church full of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, where the leadership has been flip-flopped, trying to figure out what it looks like for them to follow after Jesus. And Paul is saying, not only do I want to give something to you, but guess what, Christians? I can learn from you as well, right? And Paul is encouraging them and saying, hey, I want to be encouraged by you also, Verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. Paul's saying, I've longed to come to you. So far, I've been uh, prevented from doing that. I desire to come to you because I want to reap a harvest among you. I want to see the gospel do its thing as we continue to preach it in the city of Rome and even beyond the city of Rome with the rest of the Gentiles. Because remember, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He continues in verse 14. He begins to kind of speak into their, their division. He begins to kind of speak into this idea of, uh, are we Jewish Christians? Are we Gentile Christians? Are, are there two level of Christians? Are, are the Jewish Christians better Christians than the Gentile Christians? Paul begins to kind of gently speak into this at the very beginning of his letter. And he says this in verse 14. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The reason why this is a gentle uh, beginning into that conversation is Paul doesn't say, uh, you know, right here in this moment, he doesn't say Jews and Greeks. He's going to say that in a moment in verse 16, and we'll get to that uh, next week and this afternoon. But Paul says, I am under, uh, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. He's saying, I am under obligation to all peoples everywhere. I'm, I'm not picking and choosing who I minister to. I'm not the one who is choosing who God is making to be a Christian. I'm under obligation to all people everywhere because we know that in the Great Commission, Jesus said, I'm gonna send you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and I'll be with you to the very ends of the age, right? So Paul is saying, look, I'm under obligation to everyone. And he begins that conversation to help them understand that, that they are under obligation to one another as well. 
And as Paul is writing into uh, a situation and, and a climate where they're trying to figure out some very difficult relational and leadership dynamics within their church body, what Paul's solution, what, what his big idea is, if you're not careful, if you're just reading through the book of Romans, you could very easily miss it. You could totally easily pass it up because it seems like one of those things that you just say because, yeah, it's good and it's true. But what Paul is about to say, if you understand the reality of it, it will absolutely blow your mind and it will change your world. So let's read it and then we'll talk about it. Verse 15, Paul says this. So I'm under obligation to everyone. I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to uh, impart spiritual gifts to you. I want to reap a harvest among you. I want to partner with you and you're struggling. So here's my big idea. I've got an idea for you and it'll fix everything. You ready? He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's big solution and his big idea is he wants to go preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now let's remember, who is Paul writing to? Let's go back. Romans chapter one, verse seven. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Christians. Paul's writing to Christians. These Christians have already accepted and believed the gospel. They're Christians because they believe the gospel. They've already accepted the good news as true. They've already, they've already confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. They've already become Christians and they're struggling through some stuff and Paul is writing them saying, I've got the solution, guys. I'm gonna come to you and preach the gospel. Here's why that's so profound. I think a lot of times as Christians, for those of us, and I don't want anybody to raise hands, but just think to yourself, do I identify, am I a Christian? Do I believe the gospel? If the answer is yes, especially for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long, long, long time, it's easy to think that the gospel is something that happened way back there in our past at some point in our history. Maybe it was a, a, a friend who shared the gospel with us. Maybe we heard it at church. Maybe we, we heard it at, at, at a summer camp or maybe a family member sat down with us. Maybe we heard it on our college campus or at our workplace. And we heard the gospel and, and it was good news to us. It was good and it was news. And for the first time, we realized and we recognized, oh my, I am a creation who is obligated to a perfect and holy creator. And yet I have rebelled against my creator and I've done life the way I wanted to do life rather than doing life the way that my creator has revealed to me that life should be done. The Bible says that we have all sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. How many people are included in the word all? All, right? 
We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And when we recognize that we are created by God and we are subject to him, that we are responsible to him and yet we have rebelled against him, we recognize that there is a problem. And the gospel teaches us that though that is bad news, right? I mean, we're a creation who has rebelled against our creator, who is righteous, holy, and good, and has given us a standard, and we have not lived up to it. We have fallen short of it. That is bad news, am I right? But the gospel is good news. It doesn't stop with the bad news. It continues on. And what the gospel teaches us and tells us is that God did not allow the story to end with us in rebellion, but instead he sent his son, John 3, 16, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't allow the story to end in our rebellion, but Jesus came, the second person of the Trinity, fully God. He came and he took on human flesh. Philippians chapter two helps us understand this emptying that that Jesus did. He emptied himself of his divine attributes. He's no longer omnipresent. He's no longer omniscient, no longer omnipotent. And he puts on human flesh. He's fully God and he is fully man. And Jesus comes and he lives life on this planet. And he perfectly pleases the creator. He perfectly pleases the father. He lives without sin. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every single way. So he can relate to our temptation. Yet he was without sin. And the gospel teaches us that Jesus didn't just come and live a perfect life and then say, ha ha, that's how you're supposed to do it. Sorry, you're condemned for eternity. Deuces, right? Jesus did not do that. Instead, after living a perfect life, completely submitted to the Father, perfectly fulfilling every law that God had given, perfectly fulfilling every prophecy about his life, Jesus ends his life on this planet with the death of the cross. The death that we deserved. And the Bible teaches us that this death, he was crucified at the hands of the Romans, brought on by the Jews, that humanity crucified him, and that God poured his wrath out upon Jesus. And that Jesus, who was perfect, sinless, never did any wrong, deserved no punishment, deserved no wrath, took the full wrath of humanity and took the full wrath of a righteous and holy God simultaneously on the cross. So that if we simply said, Jesus, my life is not enough, but I know that your life, your death, your burial is enough so that I can be forgiven for my sins. And we put our faith in Jesus for salvation. And it doesn't even end there. Because we know that the, the Bible teaches us that on the third day, Jesus doesn't stay dead, but that God raises him from the dead. He conquers death so that in him, we can have eternal life. Wow, right? 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And what Paul's solution is for these Romans is, hey, when I get to Rome, I cannot wait to preach the gospel to you. See, and what this teaches us is, men and women, we never leave the gospel behind, right? I don't care if you've been following Jesus for 24 hours or 24 years. The gospel, we never leave it. See, because the gospel is something that that is easy to intellectually grasp, but it's a little bit more difficult to wrap our lives around practically, right? And furthermore, the gospel provides for us the why behind the what. Well, what do you mean by that, Joel? Here's what I mean. The gospel provides for us a motivation for living the way that Christians are called to live through the scriptures. The gospel provides for us the motivation for living a life that is pleasing to God. So for the Roman church, what they needed most in the midst of their their, uh, discord, in the midst of their tension, was that they needed the gospel. They needed the why behind the what. Let me give you an example. Let's, Let's think about our finances for just a moment. Let's think about the way that we handle money. See, the gospel doesn't teach us, you know, when it's right to to buy a house, right? The gospel doesn't teach us how to do a budget. (laughs) The gospel doesn't teach us which stocks to invest in when, or which mutual funds, or how to open an IRA. The gospel doesn't tell us that about our money, but you know what the gospel does? It tells us why the way that we handle our money matters. The gospel shows us and demonstrates and reveals to us that when we handle our money in a way that is honoring to God, then we can become generous and be a blessing to other people and we can further the kingdom of God as we give sacrificially with the money that God has entrusted us, right? Think about our relationships for a moment. The gospel doesn't tell you exactly how to repair the issues that you have in your marriage. The gospel doesn't tell you exactly how to to, to fix the issues between you and your children or between you and your siblings or you and your parents or you and your coworkers or you and fill in the blank but here's what the gospel does. It tells you why your relationships matter so desperately. Because as the world looks in on the way that we do relationship, it is a reflection on the people of God. And if we do relationship in a way that is humble and it honors God, it reflects how Jesus lived among us. How we forgive one another matters. How we, how we choose to interact with those who have hurt us most, it matters. 
And the gospel teaches us that because we see that, that when humanity was rebelling and spitting in the face of God, Jesus came for us. The Bible tells us that while we were his enemies, Jesus died for us. So do you have an enemy? Is your husband or your wife your enemy? Is your ex-husband or your ex-wife your enemy? Is your brother or your sister your enemy? Your son or your daughter, your mother or your father, your coworker, your best friend that stabbed you in the back? Who is your, your enemy? The gospel teaches us why it matters that we love our enemies and bless those who curse us. Because Jesus loved his enemies and blessed those who cursed him. So when Paul writes in verse 15 to the Roman church, we could miss it very easily if we're not careful. But the reason Paul writes to the Roman church that he was eager to preach the gospel to a bunch of Christians is because the gospel is what we need most. When we truly understand the gospel, upside down, inside out, it will change us forever. Do you know what we need, Mosaic Church? The gospel. <laughs> because the world we live in, there's a lot of tension. Do you know that's true? Man, Watch a presidential debate. You'll know that there's a lot of tension in this world. Watch the news for about seven minutes and you'll know that there's a lot of tension in this world. And as followers of Jesus, if you're here at Mosaic Church and you call Jesus Lord, what you do by definition is you say, Caesar is not Lord. Money is not Lord. Power is not Lord. Position is not Lord. Status is not Lord. I am not Lord. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. And when we see the gospel begin to change us from the inside out, it will show us how to be Jesus everywhere we go. If you're not a big fan of hearing about the gospel every week, let me suggest that you go to another church for the next three years while we're in the book of Romans, okay? Because you're gonna be hearing a lot about it. It's what I need. It's what you need. It's what we all need. We need to know that Jesus is Lord, period. Let's pray. God, we love you and we're grateful for who you are. God, we recognize that the world that we live in is shouting out to us so many other lords. Yet we recognize the truth that only Jesus is Lord. But, but God, I pray that you would help us to wrap our lives around that incredibly liberating truth. We need you, God. We need you, and we need good news. We need the gospel. We need to be convinced that all these other things are not Lord, that we are not Lord, but that Jesus, you are Lord. 
so that we can wrap our lives around that truth and that it would impact everything we do. It would change the way we think about our relationships, the way that we think about our coworkers, the way that we think about our money, the way that we think about our marriages, that it would change everything about us. It would change the way that we orient our lives. God, help, help us to see the gospel, the beautiful gospel as what we need. Thank you for the gift of the book of Romans. Thank you that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write a letter to the city and to the church of Rome. And God, thank you that you beautifully unpack and articulate for us what it looks like to live for you through the book of Romans. We're so excited. We're so grateful for your word. Teach us, God, and make us more like you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.